Hello, cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Shine. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, cyber colleagues. I'm Mark Shine, National Co-Chair of the Cyber Center of Excellence here at Marsh McLennan Agency. And today we have a true cyber slash crypto celebrity with us, Stephen Bally. Thank you for joining, Stephen. Pleasure to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me. So, Stephen, um, you know, I know, that, you know, besides for being the partner in the Washington office of uh, one of the most prestigious uh, uh, law firms to date, Anderson Kill, I know that you had a very unique background prior to getting into crypto, you know, significant hands-on experience with actually development and design of certain softwares. Um, you know, can you just explain to me how a, how a guy got into both insurance, law, and crypto? It just seems like you hit the trifecta. Sure. So it, it, uh, this all, it is actually all connected, believe it or not. Um, Back when I first went to law school, I thought I was going to become a technology lawyer. I had been working on a PhD in English literature and was studying the uh, development of the novel and its relationship to the creation of the printing press. Um, and as I did that, I started realizing that actually I, I liked law and I thought that, that was uh, particularly interesting. So I went to law school and when I, I got my first job out of law school, I ended up at a law firm that had an insurance practice. And one of the first things I was asked to do was write a coverage opinion. So I wrote, went to... Uh, the guy next door to me who happened to be the guy who got me the job at the firm and said, you know, what's a coverage opinion? And so I became an insurance lawyer and, um, you know, it was fortuitous for somebody, I was working at a PhD in English. So I like words for somebody who likes words. It's, um, it's a good thing. Uh, it's, it's a good practice area, but the technology bug, I still had it and was always sort of a bit of a, of an amateur hacker and amateur programmer. And right around 2003, 2004, I ended up um, learning to program again and building software that had to do with dispute resolution. And I'll cut it a little bit short so it's not just me lecturing, but uh, I, I discovered for myself a new way of settling cases and built software to do that. And in the process of building software to do that, I stumbled upon Bitcoin. And then I learned about uh, Ethereum, one of the other major um, uh, blockchains. And Ether is one of the major crypto assets. And although my, I actually started a software company, and although that didn't work out, I ended up doing work for people who were technologists, people building software, because I now had the ability to sort of translate between legal requirements and software requirements. So I helped somebody build an advertising platform, and I gradually started doing more and more work for crypto clients and ended up uh, with a good amount of my practice either being um, sort of on the front end regulatory compliance and um, building uh, compliance software solutions, and then also handling um, disputes because, you know, whatever the product or project is, um, as long as people are involved, there will be problems and there will be disputes. And so I deal with that as well. And I've been waiting as an insurance lawyer for insurance to become more relevant. Um, and uh, I believe it, it definitely has in the last couple of years. So that also remains part of my practice as well. So that is how a uh, middle-aged guy with a white beard became a crypto lawyer and chair of a, of a technology practice at a firm that's best known for being a policyholder side 
insurance coverage practice. Sure. So, um, you know, without putting you in the spot, and of course, please put me on the spot. It's more fun. (laughs) You know, so so we're talking about, you know, kind of crypto and law, and which kind of brings me to my first, you know, my first thought is, right, we're seeing so much conversation in the news about regulatory crackdown, whether it's uh, domestically here in the US or brought over in China. Can you give any comments into, you know, what's going on, why they may be doing this, and then the outcome? of a regulatory crackdown within crypto? So um, money is something that states like to control. And when they feel like they're losing control of it, they tend to crack down. Now, I can't speak to the specific um, issues in China, though I do know that um, it has directly impacted uh, Bitcoin miners and a lot of that hash power has moved to the United States. In the United States, I don't think we will see a crackdown like the one that we've seen in China and in other countries, we already have a fairly well-developed uh, regulatory framework, a way of understanding crypto. Um, and uh, I, I think it is too deeply embedded uh, in business at this point for it to be something that um, you know disappears. It will likely become more and more subject to um, ongoing regulation. Uh, the sort of Wild West days of cryptocurrency, which we saw uh, maybe from 10 years ago to five years ago, I think a lot of that is past regulators know what this stuff is. The IRS knows what it is. They, you're expected to pay taxes on, um, on crypto and on, on crypto that you receive as, as payment for services and for uh, capital gains. FinCEN knows what it is. So you're expected if you're operating a money services business that uses cryptocurrency, you're expected to register. Um, the SEC, the CFTC, name an agency in the United States, or name uh, someone involved in law enforcement, and, and they they know what this is, and uh, they're able to um, to regulate the space. Now, some people have said, um, you know, a common sort of theme is that cryptocurrencies are only used by criminals, and you don't have to just listen to me to to, to know that it's wrong. There, are people in uh, law enforcement uh, publicly uh, publicly stated that, um, like any asset, it can be used. Uh, for criminal purposes, but the but Bitcoin in and of itself is not something that is only used by criminals. That's just simply not true. Sure, sure. So, so we hear a lot or um, a lot in the news about well, what is Bitcoin? Is it an asset or is it a security? And where do you see that conversation going over the next couple of years? It's definitely not a security. Um, we know that in the United States because. Um, no less than the SEC. Um, the chairman of the SEC has stated publicly that it's not a security. Um, so I don't, I don't think, um, you know, a, a security or in the United States, there, there is a very well-established body of law to determine whether a digital asset is a security. You look at something called the Howey test, which glosses the definition of a security under the, um, the Securities Act of 1933, a, a security under Howey is an, uh, an investment contract, which is a security under Howey, is an investment of money in a common enterprise with the expectation of profits solely from the entrepreneurial or managerial efforts of third parties. We know that that is uh, something that does not apply to Bitcoin. Um, there are other digital assets where that is an issue. And you know, when, when thinking about um, advising a client or insuring um, a uh, uh, product or you as someone in the uh, insurance business thinking about whether you want to take someone on, that's always the, the first question. You know, there are a couple of questions that I ask uh, when someone comes to me with a digital asset 
um, project is, is it a security? Are you engaged in money transmission? Is it something that's subject to the Commodities Exchange Act? Are you selling derivatives? Um, and so what we do with these new assets is we take fairly well-established bodies of law and apply them uh, to determine which set of regulations are applicable. So you mentioned a lot of uh, uh, three and four letter agencies earlier on in the conversation. Sure. Um, one that I might have missed or we didn't speak about was OFAC. Sure. And OFAC recently put out um, uh, some guidance via the Treasury Department around Bitcoin and well, rather the facilitation of ransomware payments. Yes. Um, a comment on that? Sure. So what you're referring to is guidance from OFAC. I want to say it was... Um, earlier this year, I believe, or maybe it was late last year, but basically OFAC has said, look, um, if you're thinking about paying ransomware, be aware that if you send a payment to, to a specially designated national or to someone in a country uh, uh, regarding which there are, you know, there's a sanction regime, you may well be violating, you know, U.S. federal law, so don't do it. I think the, the problem with that guidance is it's that it puts uh, victims into you know, sort of in between a rock and a hard place, right? If you're a hospital or a power plant um, and you, you're providing mission critical services and someone has frozen your systems and demanded, uh, you know, demanded that you pay Bitcoin, um, you know, the choice that you face is maybe potentially uh, getting crosswise with OFAC on the one hand, or on the other hand, not being able to provide critical services to patients who might die. I don't actually, I don't like that guidance. Um, I don't think it was, um, I think it, it created more uncertainty in the space than was necessary. And I'm hopeful that OFAC will revisit that or perhaps Congress will be able to step in. Uh, and I, we represent people who face that problem. What do I do? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so you don't always know who, you know, that's part of the problem is you don't always know who the person or persons um who are uh, victimizing you where they are, you know, and if that's the case, what do you do? It's a difficult conversation and a difficult choice. And OFAC isn't necessarily immediately responsive in this sort of situation. What we do tell people is that, you know, when faced with that conundrum, you definitely you want to be in touch with law enforcement. Great. Appreciate the, that feedback. Let's um, talk about uh, uh, another piece of crypto that, started to involve law enforcement at a certain point was these token sales that we saw in 2017, 2018. Sure. That started to get backed by many celebrities. Now that we've seen the, the increase in crypto has, you know, risen dramatically again, we're now starting to see celebrities again backing cryptocurrencies. Can you tell us some of the lessons learned that we learned from the first time sure. about uh, the, the, the famous Instagram uh, people that are uh, sharing there with all their followers about a new crypto? It's baffling to me that people are still doing this. Um, if you are touting um, or uh, expressing a sort of favorable opinion publicly about a security um, and you have a stake or position in it or you're being paid to promote it, you have to, under federal law, you've got to disclose that. Otherwise, you run afoul of um, something called the anti-touting provisions of uh, US securities laws. Uh, people who ran afoul of that in the past were uh, DJ Khaled, Floyd Mayweather, Steven Seagal. They uh, all entered into uh, consent cease and desist agreements with the SEC. Um, even if the asset that you're touting is not a security, 
there are still FTC guidelines on uh, public promotions. And basically, if you are promoting something that you have an interest in or that you're being paid to promote, you have to disclose that. Um, you know, the uh, past just repeats itself. Uh, we're seeing uh, in 2001, I'm seeing a lot of things that I saw in 2017-18 simply repackaged with different names. Um, and that's, uh, I, I don't think um, people being what they are, I don't think, unfortunately, that that's going to change. Agreed. Um, so just trying to think about, you know, the space overall, there seems to be a lot more interest. There seems to be a, a, a millennial, a Gen Z type of really fascination around cryptocurrency. Um, given your years of experience and really understanding, you know, the law and really the space, what guidance would you give to some of these younger folks that are trying to get in, maybe things to watch out for, maybe things to look out for? Sure. I mean, it seems kind of simplistic and a bit of a truism, but there is no such thing as an unregulated asset, right? Um, so just because you gave something a new name doesn't mean that um, regulators, law enforcement, um, judges won't be able to deal with it and address it. That's number one. Uh, number two, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. So like money doesn't, you know, one of the reasons for the fascination with the space is pure and simple, the, um, the promise of or hope for quick profits with not much work. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry, but it comes from somewhere. There's always a risk and somebody's always paying. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that's something to uh, absolutely to bear in mind. And, you know, the other thing I would say, too, is I get this from clients, you know, I tell people that, you know, things that they want to do, they need to either register with uh, register um, as a security or, or claim an exemption. And, you know, I'll, I'll hear from other folks that uh, their competitors are not doing that. You know, what people don't know is necessarily um, what um, what's happening behind the scenes. Uh, most regulatory enforcement actions are confidential. You have no idea what your the project that you think is a competitor is dealing with. So. Sure. Those are some of my lessons learned. If it's too good to be true, it seems too good to be true, it probably is. So, we, yeah, I mean, we've covered a, a broad range of topics uh, spanning multiple years, your history. Um, is there anything that we should have touched upon during this podcast that we didn't? Well, I would say, I mean, look, we're both, you know, you're with Marsh McLennan, I'm with Anderson Kill. I, I would say we haven't seen a ton of activity in the insurance claim space. Um, that may be, still be a while off, but uh, there is a developing capacity to insure uh, digital assets. Um, and that's certainly something to think about when, you know, as an established business, you're embarking on projects in the space, you just, you know, want to consider what coverage you might have um, if something goes wrong. You know, does your E&O policy have a digital, have a, a crypto exclusion? Sure. Um, sure. You know, those are the things to think about. I think about, um, you know, something I spent a good amount of time on, um, oh, maybe seven or eight years ago was were drones. And, you know, there were plenty of folks who were embarking on drone projects who didn't realize that they, they didn't have coverage for aviation-related risks. So I think that's the thing to think about is sort of sound risk management. How do your, how does your, insur how do your insurance policies play into this? Um, are you going to be taking on something that's, um, potentially an insured loss. Um, 
those are the, um, I'd say, risk identification and risk transfer, the same old rules that people have applied for you know, a century or more apply here in the exact same way. Excellent. Well, Stephen, thank you for your time today and coming on the show and chatting cyber with us. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you.